We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. In the earliest days of COVID-19, we did not fully understand the scale and magnitude of the threat we faced. As the infection spread, it overwhelmed hospitals. They quickly ran short of ventilators, PPE, and the testing equipment needed to take care of the influx of patients. Each hospital consumed the equivalent of a year's worth of PPE in less than two weeks. Something needed to be done, quickly. Getting supplies into the right hands across the nation became a historic challenge. That's where my guest today comes in. In April of 2020, Rear Admiral John Polovchek was appointed to lead the Supply Chain Stabilizing Task Force that worked at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, supporting the White House COVID-19 Task Force. Admiral Polovchek, who spent over 30 years in the military and ultimately served as Vice Director of Logistics on the Joint Staff, was given a mandate to operationalize the supply chain and get those supplies into the right hands. His task was to bring order, discipline, structure, and urgency to that effort and build a supply chain that effectively connected the gaps. As he tells us, that was much easier said than done. John, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So maybe we can start at the top back in March earlier this year. Can you talk about the role that you ultimately took on and how you ended up in that role? On the joint staff, we were certainly keeping track of of COVID. We were working some uh, issues already. We had been supporting health and human services, opening bases to bring Americans back and quarantine them at uh, U.S. bases. So I, I had my toe in the door, so to speak, as the, one of the head logistics guys, uh, making sure that uh, that was happening. I got a call uh, Sunday evening from the director of the joint staff, something like, hey, John, I just got off the phone with the deputy secretary of defense and uh, the chairman. Um, Health and Human Services needs some help with logistics planning, some supply chain expertise for COVID. Hey, uh, on Monday, tomorrow, take a few people over to Health and Human Services and see what they need. COVID response is going to be a lot of logistics involved in it. And then by that Friday, I was anointed by the vice president as the supply chain task force lead. When the vice president anointed you as the head of the task force, had you met with him? And if so, how did that meeting go? How was that decision made to, to get you there? I had not met with him previous, uh, but I, I lived at the Naval Observatory and the vice president lives at the Naval Observatory. And so he had to walk past my house to take a walk with his wife, uh, the second lady. And so I've interacted with him. And so when he saw me, There was already a personal connection, and he was very comfortable. In that discussion, it became clear to me that the the White House and Health and Human Services did not have a way to operationalize the things that they needed to get done. Who was going to do the contracting? Who was going to manage the money? Who was going to schedule things like airplanes? And there had been people working on some things. I scooped everybody up and I told the vice president, I'll be the leadership, bring everybody that had been working things over to FEMA and I'll give good order and discipline and direction 
to the task force and I'll need these other people. And I explained that um, he didn't have a way to, to operationalize this and actually get work done. He agreed with that. And so therefore, I, uh, I, I stood up the task force. I mean, that was a dramatic week. So that was Wednesday, March 18th. It followed uh, the president on March 13th, the prior week, declaring a national emergency. COVID was just starting to get quite scary in the U.S. How did it feel to be part of that task force, at, you know, in the meeting that you described? And then I'm also curious, like, what led you to tell the vice president that you were the person to bring order to the chaos? I don't think anybody completely understood the scale and magnitude of a global pandemic. It just became a dive in and all consuming. I don't think I had any luxury of time to think about the predicament that I now put myself in. You know, as a naval officer, when the country asks you to do something, it's not like you get a choice. And so I saw this as something that um, was given to me as my responsibility. And I just uh, proceeded in that manner and just took charge of the area that that I was now going to own and moved out. Were you working 24 hours a day? Like, what was it actually like? I think from mid-March to May, I probably averaged about three to four hours of sleep a night for a month and a half going on maybe almost two months. I would leave uh, the White House at 10 o'clock in the evening, go back to FEMA for a little bit get home about midnight, brush my teeth and try to get to bed. And the vice president would call uh, because he just got off the phone with a governor. I'd talk to him and then I would uh, try to get a few hours of sleep and be back in the office uh, by about five o'clock in the morning. You are, as a human being, watching the events unfold in our country. How much are you plugged into kind of that side, the current events, understanding what's going on with COVID? And how much does that inform what you're actually deciding to do? I have relatives that are in the healthcare profession in New York. My sister is a nurse practitioner working in emergency rooms in a Westchester County hospital. My niece is a nurse on Long Island. I have skin in the game from the beginning. I used the media reports of lack of supplies, you know, those things. And I, I told the team, hey, look, we got to turn these news reporting from nobody has anything and, and it's all doom and gloom and we're all, uh, all going to die to I don't want to see any reporting of shortages of supplies. There was uh, just an absolute urgency over everything we did. I had a team of people that did nothing but watch the news and I had the TV on. How did you view your mandate and how did you come up with a plan to attack the mandate? The mandate was actually very simple. Eventually, I did meet with the president and it was clear the mandate was get our healthcare workers what they need when they need it. We kept it that simple. Can you talk a little bit more, share a bit more detail about how you started to mobilize efforts to achieve that goal? We make nothing in America. The national stockpile was already distributed. Hospitals didn't have supplies on hand. States didn't have supplies. The federal government didn't have supplies. We were in a very dire spot, right? And so that's why all of the lines of effort to go get more, get it here faster, expand our industrial base to make it here so we can have supplies in the midst of a global pandemic where everybody was competing for those few sources overseas. Nitrile gloves. The whole world is wholly dependent on Malaysia, Vietnam, China 
for nitro gloves. As COVID increases around the globe, if um, any of those areas shut down manufacturing of gloves, because it's so complex to make nitro gloves, those machines are football fields in size take up a lot of energy, a lot of space. We don't make a whole lot of gloves in the United States. So I developed four lines of effort with help of uh, some folks at Health and Human Services. Preservation, acceleration, and distribution, uh, or I'll call allocation, all designed to allow me to get to expansion. And, And expansion is use of the Defense Production Act, increase U.S. manufacturing so we can make more here. And so therefore, our healthcare workers could have more. Preservation was just what it sounds like. This was the concepts behind decontamination of masks. These were the concepts of even going as far as figuring out how to put two people on a ventilator. It was getting our supplies to go farther. Acceleration is, again, just what it sounds. We scoured the globe for things to buy. Acceleration really manifested itself into the air bridge where we worked with commercial industry as the federal government was finding supplies and flying it. You should think about that as priming the pump. The distribution or the allocation line of effort was my data line of effort. Working with the commercial supply chain providers, I got access to their business transaction information and I could start making sense of the supply chain. Those three lines were so I could build a U.S. medical industrial base to provide more supplies to the frontline healthcare workers for the pandemic. As we move through the pandemic, we added to that data set feeds from hospitals and nursing homes. And so as I left the task force in November, we now had the complete commercial supply chain captured digitally and Hospitals and nursing homes are reporting what they have on hand, days of supplies and eaches of things. And so you were really left with managing the few hospitals and nursing homes that had like less than two weeks of supplies on hand. And you would orientate the network to go feed those hospitals. It feels like you're you're adjacent to two sectors here. One is the U.S. healthcare system, not nationalized, famously opaque, complex, and then you're also dealing with private enterprise. How did you navigate the challenge of navigating these very complex, decentralized structures? We call this a whole of America response. There's uh, essentially 6,000 hospitals that manage COVID patients, 15,000 nursing homes, So you had 21,000 individual entities that really needed to get supplies, along with everybody else that wanted masks and gloves and things. There is an association for everything. Um, One of my lessons learned really is the power of an association in their constituents. And so I worked very closely with the American Hospital Association, the American Nurses Association, um, the associations for nursing homes, bringing them all together and provide leadership and direction to where we're all, you know, proverbially rowing in the same direction. One weekend, Dr. Birch was very concerned with the amount of disease in Detroit. And this was late March. I worked with the American Hospital Association to get me all the right phone numbers. I called every major hospital in Detroit and their hospital administrators called me back. And eventually I talked to every one of them. And I actually got a sense of calm by talking to the leaders of our healthcare system. Direct 
calls to hospitals and nursing homes. Help me orientate to the needs of the frontline healthcare workers and really relieve some misinformation. And it just gave me so much clarity to get down to that level. What are some of the the key lessons that you learned in your role? Maybe advice that you would give to professionals involved in our ongoing response in the future? So I've uh, had some uh, background in that they call the silent service, where you don't talk about operational issues. I uh, wish I would have been more vocal and a better communicator to the American public to what we were doing. And because it was not in my DNA to talk about operations, I probably initially declined to do interviews. Uh, you know, I was wrapped up in the response, kind of fell into a, uh, to an operational mindset. As we go forward as a nation, we're going to have to think about what are those things that we're going to have to continue to be able to go do for any future pandemic. And really, you can substitute something else for a pandemic, a major cyber event. What if? What if? How is the federal government and how is the whole of America going to respond if there's a major cyber event and banking goes down, the electric grid goes down? You know, How are we going to manage that? The third and final lesson, I guess I would say, is you cannot surge what you don't have. The Defense Production Act is a great tool, but these things aren't a light switch. You just can't all of a sudden say, go start making this. Is standing up manufacturing capacity for some of this PPE realistic in the near term, or is that sort of, you know, for something looking forward more to the future? No, it's very realistic. To give you an example, in, um, in pre-COVID, we made about 30 million N95 masks uh, a month in the United States. Now in December, we're making about 180 million masks a month, going to be 200 million by the time we get into January. And by the time spring happens, we'll be making 250 million masks a month. We think the U.S. demand monthly is somewhere around 180 million masks a month. We got there late fall, uh, 180, 160 to 180 million masks a month being manufactured in the United States. Luckily, we had some masks being manufactured. On the other hand, nitro gloves, we made essentially zero in the United States. We use about a, uh, 1.5 billion gloves a week or 5 billion gloves a month. Going from essentially zero to billions. You know, what we did with ventilators, the stockpile had 16,000 ventilators in it in the beginning in March. The nation made maybe 30,000 ventilators a year. We made 153,000 ventilators in six months. It is very realistic. We've built a medical industrial base that was not here at the beginning of the pandemic. The federal government is rebuilding and how has 90 days worth of material in the national stockpile. The U.S. industrial base is now manufacturing personal protective equipment. We've got more ventilators in the stockpile. When I left the task force, no state in the last going on three months had asked the federal government for any significant amount of supplies. Lastly, could you talk about what you think the biggest challenges are for the incoming Biden administration on COVID specifically? The state governments have a tremendous lift to work through the communication to everybody in their states. 
who's going to get a vaccine, when they're going to get it, where do they go to get the vaccine? Because really the immunization plans are managed at the state level. That's a major challenge. But luckily, General Perna and Operation Warp Speed have taken the DOD mentality of looking at every scenario and planning that out to allow for options as things change. We keep the healthcare in America from going back to, I just want my 20 cent mask. I want it just in time. I don't care where it comes from. And let cost be king again and drive us back down to importing all the supplies again. I think that is going to be the long-term challenge of the next administration and Congress as we go forward. There's some real work to be done there. Well, John, thank you so much. Thank you for your service, especially this last uh, year. It's been so impactful. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Eric. I enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. That was Rear Admiral John Polubchek, the former head of FEMA's Supply Chain Stabilization Task Force. My biggest takeaway from my conversation with Admiral Polubchek was that amid all of the partisan conflicts surrounding COVID-19, there are so many professionals working tirelessly behind the scenes, laser-focused on bringing relief to the millions of individuals suffering from this pandemic. We hope you'll join us next time for another in-depth interview with one of GLG's council members. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. And don't forget to visit our website, glginsights.com, for articles, ebooks, and videos about the world around us. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.